0: Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of racism, police brutality, killing, and uses a lot of gunfire sound effects. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Some people, maybe most people, like to think of themselves as fundamentally good that if push came to shove, they would stand up to unfairness and wrestle against injustice. That was certainly true for 33-year-old Christopher Dorner, who cared about his reputation above all else. He saw himself as a man who fought for what was right, like the following moment, as Dorner recalls from his childhood. In elementary school, a classmate called Dorner a racial slur. Then Dorner punched him. But that incident didn't end well for Dorner, because according to Chris Dorner, instead of being hailed as a hero, the teacher punished Dorner for reacting violently.
1: Decades later, in 2006, Dorner joined the LAPD, still committed to fairness and the law. But there, he found the third largest police department in the United States was a lot like his old playground. He witnessed rampant discrimination, Claiming that some of his fellow officers were disproportionately violent with people of color, he tried to speak up, just like he had in elementary school. In the end, he was punished for it, and his sense of justice was shaken. Most people would have given up and gone home, but Dorner wanted to clear his name. He was determined to make the people who'd betrayed him pay, even if that meant turning Southern California into a war zone.
0: Hi listeners, it's Vanessa. Welcome back to Manhunts, a special series on serial killers, a Spotify original from Parcast. In these episodes, we take you through the most dangerous, mind-bending, and heart-pounding manhunts in history. We'll learn the top secret methods used to track down fugitives and the techniques they use to stay one step ahead I'm here with my co-host Greg Polson.
1: Hi everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify.
0: Today's episode is about the manhunt for Christopher Dorner, an ex-police officer who turned on his former comrades and became a killer. In 2013, Dorner began picking officers off one by one. Today, we'll follow the police as they work to uncover Dorner's agenda.
1: Next time, we'll dive deep into the controversy around Dorner. All while the killer prepares for a final showdown with the LAPD in icy cold temperatures.
0: We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us.
2: Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the Wallet app, and you're good to go. To
0: get to the manhunt for Chris Dorner, we're starting with a young Irvine couple, Monica Kwan and Keith Lawrence. In 2013, they'd just gotten engaged and were busy laying the foundation for their future. Monica and Keith were a great match. They were both star basketball players back in their college days when the couple first met. And at the turn of 2013, Monica was working as an assistant coach at Cal State Fullerton. Keith had just started as a campus security officer at the University of Southern California. The job gave him something in common with Monica's family, since she was the daughter of a retired police captain. Of course, campus security wasn't the same thing as serving in one of the largest police departments in the United States, the LAPD. For one, it was less dangerous. There weren't any gunfights or grisly murders and no daily brushes with death, or at least there weren't supposed to be.
1: On February 3rd, Keith and Monica left a Super Bowl party a little early. They soon rolled into their condo's parking garage and headed to the rooftop lot. But as they pulled into a parking space, a stranger approached, brandishing a nine millimeter pistol. Unbeknownst to the couple, he'd been waiting for them. Before they knew what was happening, he fired. Using a high-capacity magazine, he riddled the vehicle with holes. Hours later, a passerby noticed the couple slumped over inside their white Kia, lying eerily still. With a creeping horror, they spotted the blood soaking the front seats. Monica and Keith were shot multiple times in the head and face. A passerby called the police, who arrived at the Grizzly scene, no doubt expecting a robbery gone wrong. Instead, what they discovered left them scratching their heads. Nothing was taken from the vehicle or from Keith and Monica's apartment. There was no note, no murder weapon, and nothing to suggest a motive. The detective said it was one of the coldest crime scenes she had ever seen. She also noted the garage was surrounded by high-rise apartments, The flurry of gunshots in the open air should have been heard all around. Well, they weren't. That meant the killer had likely used a silencer.
0: Equipment like that was pricey and hard to come by since the federal government regulates its sale. It was unlikely that an amateur killer would have access to it. According to the Los Angeles Times, police started to wonder if they were dealing with a professional Maybe the culprit was a hitman or connected to a powerful organization like the mob. And if that was the case, they couldn't count on the killer slipping up. They'd need everyone to put their heads together to find a solid lead or connect some dots they weren't seeing. And that brings us to an LAPD sergeant named Teresa Evans.
1: For Evans, February 4th started out as a normal day. She'd planned to go on her usual morning run along the beach. But just as she was about to get going, she was interrupted by a strange call. Apparently, someone found a bunch of heavy-duty LAPD equipment, like a uniform, a ballistics vest, and ammo in a dumpster. Along with the strange items was a field notebook. Two handwritten names were scrawled across the cover. One read, Evans, her name. And the other, Dorner.
0: The two of them had quite a history together, one that started in 2007 when Evans was training Christopher Dorner to join the LAPD. During the process, Dorner, who was black, was quick to call out what he saw as rampant discrimination. He claimed that some of his fellow officers were disproportionately violent with people of color. However, Evans claimed her new trainee was sloppy and quick to get emotional over perceived injustices. In an evaluation, she told him to improve his police work or else she'd mark his performance as unsatisfactory.
1: According to LAPD records, Dorner filed a complaint a day later, a serious one.
0: In it, Dorner alleged that he witnessed Evans kicking a man living with schizophrenia and dementia in the face, all while the man was restrained and lying on the ground. The complaint alleged the incident was a clear use of excessive force and the man's mental illness was a compounding factor. Evans said she did no such thing, but there were witnesses on both sides.
1: Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show.
0: Thanks, Greg. If Dorner's allegations of racism and discrimination within the LAPD were true, it theoretically could have caused what's known as a moral injury. According to police psychologists, this can be caused by witnessing or performing actions that dramatically contradict one's own morals and beliefs. Officers can also experience a moral injury when they see behavior from their supervisors that violate their principles, just like what Dorner alleged to have happened with his training officer, Evans. And this event, which Evans denied, may have caused him to stop viewing the world as a safe and benevolent place or of human beings as trustworthy.
2: After
1: Dorner filed the complaint, Internal Affairs got involved. The hearing and its aftermath lasted a full year. In the end, a small tribunal of two LAPD officers and a criminal defense lawyer determined there was no use of excessive force. And to make matters worse, Dorner was fired for making false statements.
0: The LAPD wasn't just claiming that Officer Evans had behaved appropriately. They were explicitly calling Christopher Dorner a liar. They accused him of making it all up, perhaps in a malicious attempt to get Teresa Evans in trouble.
1: In 2008, the verdict came down and Dorner was escorted from the building. Evans and her lawyer said he left with a chilling stare on his face, like someone already planning his next move. Sooner or later, she believed Dorner would want payback. Which
0: makes sense from a psychological perspective, Studies also identified an association between moral injury and negative psychological outcomes, like depression, anger, or even an impulse to seek vengeance. According to Evans, that was what she feared most. For six months after that, she carried her Glock everywhere she went. She grew paranoid. So now, roughly five years later, when it seemed like Dorner had disposed of a bunch of police hardware with her name on it, Evans' anxiety surged the threat of Dorner's possible retaliation was on the forefront of her mind. Suddenly, she headed back home. A morning run wasn't so appealing after all.
1: Which brings us back to February 4th. Evans likely spent a few hours trying to forget about the field notebook linking her name with Dorner's. But it got worse. When she arrived at her station, ready for her overnight shift, she overheard some officers talking about the mysterious Irvine murders. By that point, the police had identified the victims, Keith Lawrence and Monica Kwan, the daughter of attorney and police captain, Randall Kwan. When Evans heard that Randall's daughter was murdered, she felt the hair in the back of her neck stand up. This was the second strange reminder of Christopher Dorner in one day because in addition to being a former police captain, Randall Kwan was Dorner's attorney during his legal battles with Teresa Evans.
0: After Dorner's dismissal, Kwan had stood by his client, claiming that the LAPD made Dorner a scapegoat. He appealed the firing, but the court ultimately upheld the department's decision. Kwan had tried, but failed, and perhaps Dorner still blamed him
1: so, on a hunch, Evans called the Irvine Police Department and asked them to look into Dorner. The hunch was a good one. The next day, authorities linked Dorner's 9mm Glock to shell casings found at the crime scene. But that was just the beginning. Because soon, the LAPD discovered a 21-page thread on Facebook, written by Christopher Dorner. There it was in black and white. It wasn't a signed confession but it included nearly everything a detective could ask for.
0: Dorner's so-called manifesto opens like a police report. It's addressed to America, subject line, last resort. And then there's the body of the post, which reads,
1: I know most of you who personally know me are in disbelief to hear from media reports that I am suspected of committing such horrendous murders. Unfortunately, this is a necessary evil.
0: Along with saying goodbye to those he knew personally, Dorner called the LAPD corrupt. He vowed to take down the department piece by piece.
1: He then named 40 officers as targets, including Teresa Evans and Randall Kwan. He was going to hunt down every person on his list and anyone who got in his way. He was determined to clear his name. The killings wouldn't stop until the LAPD publicly admitted that Dorner hadn't lied about his training officer using excessive force.
0: The LAPD was floored by Dorner's threats. Not only was he targeting police officers, he'd shown he was willing to go after their family members as well. Monica and Keith were just the beginning.
2: Coming up, Christopher Dorner strikes again. I'm Darnell Ishmael, guest host of Bass Reeves, No Master But Duty, the special four-part miniseries from Solved Murders. I am honored to take you on a journey deep into the Old West to meet one of the greatest true crime heroes you may have never known existed, Bass Reeves. No Master But Duty reveals the true story of a formerly enslaved man who went on to become one of the most legendary U.S. Deputy Marshals in the American West, bringing justice to over 3,000 criminals. Follow Solved Murders and catch all four episodes of Bass Reeves' No Master But Duty. Listen for free. Only on Spotify. Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the wallet app, and you're good to go. And now, back to the story.
0: On February 3, 2013, Christopher Dorner killed Keith Lawrence and Monica Kwan to get back at Monica's father, who represented him in court. The next day, he posted a manifesto on Facebook claiming he'd kill until the LAPD cleared his name and admitted he hadn't lied about Teresa Evans' use of excessive force. He wanted the department to acknowledge publicly that he was innocent.
1: The LA Times reported the police reviewed Dorner's hit list and determined at least 30 people needed protection. They assigned every target a, quote, scarecrow detail, which meant two cops always nearby, always visible. Various other teams from gang squads to vice squads also leapt into action as quickly as possible. They had to get to the targets and Dorner before it was too late.
0: But though the LAPD might have seen Dorner as a dangerous criminal, it's possible Dorner saw himself quite differently. His manifesto makes it seem like he saw himself as the star of a gritty 80s movie, a cop forced to break the rules in order to deliver justice. Passers-by on the street became non-combatants, while the police and their families were deemed acceptable targets.
1: Which makes sense given his background. Before he was an LAPD officer, he served for years in the U.S. Naval Reserve. He trained as a sniper and was deployed to the Persian Gulf. In such a dangerous, unfamiliar environment, Dorner may have stopped seeing himself as part of the world around him, but rather outside of it. He wasn't a civilian, but something else. He needed to constantly be on his guard to protect those around them.
0: And that February, he was still behaving like he might have in the military. He was walking the streets with concealed weapons. He was checking entrances and exits, and clocking security cameras when he stepped outside. He knew that every officer in Southern California was likely on high alert, watching for a man that matched his description. Like on February 5th, two days after killing Monica and Keith, Dorner stopped at a military base hotel in San Diego He laid low and left the next day without checking out. Then he headed to a nearby yacht club to make his next move.
1: He knew they had his license plates by that point, so he wouldn't necessarily be safe in his massive truck, a gray Nissan Titan. He likely stalked the docks on foot, looking for a way to throw the police off his tail.
0: The LA Times reported that Dorner eventually came upon a 47-foot yacht. He leapt aboard and crept up to the owner, 81-year-old Carlos Capriolio, who was watching TV.
1: Dorner pointed a semi-automatic handgun at the man and said, I don't want to kill you, but you're going to take me to Mexico. Carlos had no idea what was going on, but he did his best to follow instructions. Despite serving the U.S. Navy, Dorner apparently wasn't the best boatsman. Before Carlos cast off from the dock, Dorner untied the mooring and tossed it in the water. When the owner started up the yacht, the rope got caught in the propeller. The boat broke down. Dorner's escape to Mexico failed before it even began. Clearly, things weren't working out the way he'd imagined. He had to adapt and couldn't risk Carlos calling the police. He removed the laces from the yacht owner's shoes and tied him up on the sun deck. Then he stole Carlos's cell phone and vanished into the night. He'd have to use the Nissan Titan after all. Eventually,
0: Carlos freed himself and called the police. It didn't take long for detectives to figure out that he'd come face to face with Christopher Dorner and lived to tell about it.
1: The cops weren't sure they'd be so lucky though. They had no idea where he would strike next, and many were feeling deeply afraid.
0: Like Sergeant Teresa Evans. The killer had devoted a chunk of his grievances directly at her. In the manifesto, he wrote,
1: quote, You destroyed my life and name because of your actions. Time is up.
0: Because of this threat, police captains told her to stay mobile and not go home on February 5th. She bought time by driving around L.A., steering with one hand so the other had quick access to her pistol. She kept changing her route too, taking U-turn after U-turn in case Dorner had tapped her GPS. She spent the first night at a hotel, but she eventually returned to her house under heavy protection. Cops with assault rifles stood guard in her living room and covered the windows with blankets in case the former cop might snipe from across the
1: street. She wasn't the only one living in terror, Officers scrubbed their Facebook profiles of any links to loved ones and sent their kids away from home. The worst part was, no amount of manpower could eliminate the threat because the entire force was the target. Still, they couldn't just hide. They had to find Dorner.
0: A manhunt is a big endeavor, even for a large and well-funded police department like the LAPD, Manpower can be the biggest expense, especially because overtime is virtually guaranteed for long searches. The day-to-day logistics aren't as exciting as the movies, where hundreds of officers are called into one big room and briefed on the situation. Instead, alerts are sent out to affected police departments, and units are distributed as needed. It's a meticulous process of chasing down leads and making sure no stone is left unturned, rather than a chaotic surge. And according to officials, public tips are often the decisive factor in tracking down a fugitive. Basically, the LAPD needed the public's help to find Christopher Dorner, which meant they would have had to level with the residents of Los Angeles. A former police officer was out to kill cops.
1: Dorner was trying to punish them for alleged discrimination, excessive force, and wrongful termination.
0: The thing is, it wasn't the first time the department had been called discriminatory. According to the analysis of some researchers and journalists, throughout its history, the LAPD has been complicit in political efforts to racially segregate the city of Los Angeles, and has been accused of profiling, as well as using excessive force against Black and Latino residents. In this case, the department released Dorner's description and history, as well as the license plates for his Nissan Titan, They also granted reporters access to his 21-page tirade, which had since been removed from Facebook. Meanwhile, Dorner was on the move. After failing to steal the boat, he headed back towards L.A. If he really had been trying to flee to Mexico, he'd apparently changed his mind. Now, he was all in.
1: It was February 7th, 1.25 a.m., just hours after the failed yacht theft. Dorner drove through Corona, a town not too far from Los Angeles. He stopped at a gas station there near the Riverside Freeway. Inside the station's minimart, a man who had stopped to pump gas vaguely recognized Dorner. This man eventually waved down a patrol car across the street. He told the cops he thought he just saw the man everyone was looking for.
0: It's possible Dorner was watching, because just as the witness was talking to the cops, he took off in his Nissan Titan.
1: The officers leapt into action and gave chase onto a highway. The killer got off on an exit and the officers followed. But that was just what Dorner wanted. As the cops drove down the off-ramp, Dorner wildly fired his semi-automatic rifle directly at them. The patrol car was pelted with 29 bullets. The officers ducked trying to shoot back with their handguns, but their firepower was outmatched. One officer was grazed in the forehead and they were forced to call in backup.
0: But Dorner likely wasn't afraid of backup. In fact, he might have counted on it. Officers across the country are trained in risk management. That means that in any given situation, the police are looking to reduce risks that threaten public safety. It's not a set of rules exactly, but more like a way of thinking. Christopher Dorner knew this mindset intimately. After firing his rifle on a public highway, he understood that officers would call for reinforcements and then expect him to run, knowing that he could play against their expectations. He likely knew he had a moment of calm before backup arrived. That could help him flee, or he could surprise his enemies and use the time to prepare a counterattack instead. He wasn't finished yet.
1: About 10 miles away, veteran police officer Michael Crane and trainee Andrew Takias were driving through the streets of Riverside, like it was any other night. Crane had been on the force for years. Takias had started his field training program just two months before, and he was still really enthusiastic. He watched the gritty cop film End of Watch before each shift, just to psych himself up. It was early in the morning and the town was quiet. The two officers stopped at a red light. As they sat there, the police radio crackled. The LAPD sent out an all-points bulletin for Dorner's arrest. Just 20 minutes before, he'd fired on two officers, right off the Riverside Freeway. That was basically in Tacius and Crane's backyard. Before the stoplight could change, a massive pickup truck rolled across the intersection, right toward them. It was a gray Nissan Titan, Christopher Dorner. Something flashed in the corners of their eyes. The blur of a rifle with camouflage stock and a black barrel pointed directly at them. durner used the same tactic as before, strike first and strike hard. Except these cops weren't even on his manifesto. In fact, he'd never even met them before. But that didn't matter. They were cops, so they were his enemies. He fired repeatedly from his driver's side window, killing Michael Crane. Then he took off. Tacius was alive, but he wasn't in good shape. Both of his arms had suffered gunshot wounds, and he was bleeding badly. Luckily, a cab driver rushed to the car to help. The rookie managed to ask for the radio. So the cabbie grabbed the walkie-talkie from his dashboard and held it to Tacius' lips. Tacius struggled to get out two words. Officer down."
0: As the ambulances sped to the scene, Dorner was already long gone. In addition to killing Monica Kwan and Keith Lawrence, Dorner had officially shot at four police officers. At least one was dead, with another in critical condition. No one had gotten close to apprehending the suspect, and calling for backup had only led units straight to the slaughter. If the LAPD were concerned before, Now they were on the verge of full-blown panic.
1: Coming up, a case of mistaken identity turns deadly.
0: This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like UGG, Samsung, and Expedia. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use After murdering Monica Kwan and Keith Lawrence, Christopher Dorner turned his assault rifle on the police. On the night of February 7th, he fired on four officers in two different shootings, killing one. The violence was escalating. Now that he'd actually drawn blood from an on-duty officer, wearing blue probably felt like painting a giant target on your back. Police all over Southern California would be on edge, even while doing their jobs, They scoured the streets for signs of Dorner or his Nissan Titan, constantly looking over their own shoulders.
1: It's possible Dorner believed that scaring the LAPD would lead to deadly mistakes. And perhaps no group was more nervous than a squad of eight police officers roaming the city of Torrance. Around 5 a.m. on February 7th, just three and a half hours after the Riverside shooting, the officers were holed up in a van together, guns at the ready. The group was charged as acting as bodyguards for a police captain Dorner had explicitly mentioned in his manifesto. They were expecting a shootout at any moment, and suddenly they heard a vehicle. It was hard to tell in the dark, but it seemed like the pickup was slowly rolling towards them. It looked gray or maybe bluish, like Christopher Dorner's. The officers had to think fast. None of them wanted to be ambushed like Dorner's last victims.
0: According to a memo later written by a district attorney, when one officer heard a gunshot, they all fired.
1: Glass shattered. Bullets tore through the seats and the headrest. As the smoke cleared, officers heard screams from inside the truck. They ordered the fugitive to come out and put his hands up. But when the door opened, the driver looked nothing like Dorner.
0: A small woman and her mother, who was in her 70s, emerged from the truck, terrified. They were bleeding, struck in the hand, the back, and the collarbone. The daughter told her mom to stand close. She worried they were about to be executed. It turned out that the pickup truck wasn't a Nissan Titan, and it definitely wasn't Christopher Dorner's. The two women had been out early in the morning delivering newspapers. The supposed gunshot was just the sound of a paper hitting the ground. The police lowered their guns, but as far as the older woman could see, they didn't seem remorseful. She wondered why they didn't even help with first aid.
1: Then, only 25 minutes later, police shot up another pickup only a few blocks away. It was a second case of itchy trigger fingers, with officers firing on an unrelated vehicle that only vaguely resembled Dorner's. Luckily, the 38-year-old surfer inside was injured, but alive. Southern California was turning into a battlefield.
0: To untangle how this happened, we can start by thinking about Dorner's and the LAPD's mindset.
1: During his time in the military, Dorner would have been primed to see the world as a battlefield and to consider himself a combatant. Then, during LAPD training, he likely would have been taught how to assess risks, plan operations, and anticipate attacks.
0: Some have described it as an us-versus-them mentality, one that many contribute to a high degree of stress in officers. For instance, in 2021, researchers found that 40% of responding police officers believed the world is an unsafe place and no longer trusted people at large.
1: It's possible that as time went on, and Dorner was ousted from the LAPD, his conception of the world changed. He was no longer an officer, and criminals were no longer his targets. His former department was the enemy. His anger shifted to the police as an institution.
0: So he tried to rally allies to his side. He wanted the police running scared, in order to further divide them from the people they were supposed to protect.
1: In Dorner's manifesto, he addressed the residents of Los Angeles directly. Quote, do not render medical aid to downed officers or enemy combatants. They would not do the same for you. Then he claimed officers would let an injured civilian die just to accrue overtime in court.
0: Dorner was essentially saying, if officers wouldn't save civilians, civilians shouldn't save officers.
1: He closed that thought with, quote, Let the balance of loss of life take place. Sometimes a reset needs to occur. And his words had impact. According to the LA Times, people who looked like Dorner began to fear for their lives. One of them even wrote on his t-shirt, not Chris Dorner, please do not shoot.
0: It seemed the killer really did know how the police thought and pressed every single one of their buttons. If they didn't catch the suspect soon, there could be mayhem on the streets. In effect, the LAPD had created a monster. They trained Dorner to see others as enemies, then made themselves the other. It was as if the cops were chasing the ghost of their own past and time was running short.
1: But on February 7th, the police picked up their next clue in Big Bear, a mountain town about two and a half hours east of LA. On an icy mountain road, they found the smoldering remains of Dorner's truck. Dorner was likely somewhere in town.
0: To protect residents and limit Dorner's ability to blend in with the crowd, law enforcement got to work shutting down ski resorts and schools. It was the dead of winter and Dorner's outside movements would be limited by the wind and cold. A staggering 125 police officers flooded the town. Spending three long days and a massive amount of resources searching, no stone was left unturned, but there was no sign of the killer. It was time to pull out all the stops.
1: The mayor of L.A. offered a $1 million reward for information leading to Dorner's arrest. Now The LAPD protection squads grew more sophisticated. They even laid traps around high-profile targets. For instance, they parked a single patrol car outside a home, giving the impression of little security. But in the surrounding buildings were undercover teams, 16 men strong, all lying in wait. Still, officers were feeling the strain. It was clear the issues were piling up. Again, manhunts can cost cities big money. The cash goes to heavy equipment and air support, as well as to the officers doing the searching. The total cost of the hunt for Christopher Dorner isn't known. But more than likely, was in the millions. And all to find just one man. The LAPD was also spread really thin. The Grammy Awards being held in Los Angeles that year meant the department had to split its priorities to provide security. So a tactical alert was issued. The call urged officers to focus on responding to emergencies and emergencies only.
0: In this case, because manpower was limited, the warning could help on-duty officers decide where to focus their efforts. By ignoring lower priority issues, cops would have more officers on reserve in case of disaster. And the public outreach, which had been so essential to tracking the killer from San Diego to LA, was no longer helpful. By February 11th, a week after Dorner's first murder, the authorities claimed that they'd investigated over 600 tips about his whereabouts. People said they'd seen him in L.A., San Diego, and San Francisco, but none of the sightings bore fruit. So, reluctantly, the authorities turned their attention back to the freezing woods of Big Bear.
1: Dozens of officers combed the eight-mile area surrounding Dorner's truck. They trudged through snow and braved the bitter wind while carrying heavy weapons and police gear.
0: The LAPD's head psychologist had warned the search teams that based on his unhinged actions, Dorner seemed like a man ready to die. If he seemed like he was surrendering, be skeptical. Approach carefully because he might be booby trapped and ready to take out others with him.
1: But the officers didn't see any sign of him in the woods. Eventually, officers started looking elsewhere, including Mexico.
0: Until Dorner slipped up and revealed himself, It seemed like there was nothing to do but be patient. And on February 12th, the police finally got what they were waiting for.
1: A property owner in Big Bear called emergency services in a panic. She claimed she'd been tied up by a man who, judging by her description, sounded a lot like Christopher Dorner. She escaped only after he stole a car, a purple Nissan, and fled. The police didn't waste any time all available units raced to Dorner's last location. Up to this point, the killer was the one calling the shots. The police were forced to react to his moves and stumble around in the darkness while he laid low. Now they were finally in hot pursuit. The LAPD wasn't going to let him get away again. One way or another, it would all be over soon. Thanks again for tuning in to Serial Killers. We'll be back next time with Part 2 of The Manhunt for Christopher Dorner. We'll follow the police as they corner the cop killer in the California mountains for one final showdown. For more information on Christopher Dorner, we found the Los Angeles Times article, The Manhunt for Christopher Dorner, by Christopher Gofford, Joel Rubin, and Kurt Streeter, extremely helpful to our research.
0: You can find all episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify.
1: We'll see you next time.
0: Stay safe out there.
1: Serial Killers is a Spotify original from ParCast, executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Spencer Howard. Stacey Nemick is our supervising editor and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Tara Wells, edited by Ben Caro and Kate Murdoch, fact checked by Cheyenne Lopez, researched by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood, produced by Bruce Katovich, and sound designed by Michael Motion. Our hosts are Vanessa Richardson and me, Greg
2: Paulson. I'm Darnell Ishmael. This February on Solved Murders. Join me for a four-part miniseries on the incredible life and career of Bass Reeves, one of the preeminent U.S. Deputy Marshals in the American West. In Bass Reeves, No Master But Duty, discover how a man born into slavery took freedom by force and brought over 3,000 criminals to justice, including his own son. Follow Solved Murders and catch all four episodes of Bass Reeves. No master but duty. Listen for free. Only on Spotify.